Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I am Dr. Alana Morris, Director of Heart Failure Research and Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. This is the third episode in a three-part series on recent updates in managing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and what you really need to know now. Joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. Javid Butler. Dr. Butler is president of the Baylor Scott & White Research Institute, senior vice president of Baylor Scott & White Health, and distinguished professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. He has previously served as the director for heart failure research at Emory University, and as director of the heart and heart lung transplant programs at Vanderbilt University. So glad you can join me today, Javid. Absolutely a pleasure, great to be with you. In this podcast, we're gonna discuss recent trials in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF and what they mean for the treatment of these patients. And Javid, to illustrate this discussion for our listeners, let's consider a case and walk through how we might manage this patient according to the current evidence and guidelines. So I'm going to present a typical patient that hopefully will be familiar to you as well as clinicians across the country. So our patient's a woman in late middle age who initially presented with a three-month history of shortness of breath, which got worse when she walks uphill or upstairs. She has an established history of hypertension and obesity, and she's been treated for her blood pressure for years. On exam, she's got some trace pedal edema and some congestion in the lower lung fields. And we suspect possible heart failure, so we order an echocardiogram that shows an ejection fraction of 50%. And in accordance with the new universal definition of heart failure, we order a BNP level, which is elevated at 130 picograms per mil. So in summary, we've got a hypertensive patient. She's got symptoms of dyspnea, evidence of congestion on exam, evidence of structural abnormalities on echo, as well as elevated natriuretic peptide levels. And I think all of this together satisfies the new universal definition of heart failure. And I think we can say she has HEFPEP based on her EF of 50%. Would you agree with that, Javid? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, that uh, meets, the, meets the definition and uh, many features of the exam and history are also consistent with that. So uh, absolutely. Okay. So in the last podcast, we reviewed the evidence for different therapies in HEFPEF. Now, Javi, can you take us through your thought process on how you might manage a patient like this one who has newly newly diagnosed HEFPEF and what traditional therapies have demonstrated efficacy in a patient like her? Yeah, so, you know, I would really love to uh, get your opinion also uh, on how you would manage this patient. You know, from my perspective, I would sort of, you know, divide my my mindset when approaching this patient into sort of three uh, issues. So one issue is, is there an underlying condition which is not clinically evident that I need to worry about? Is there any reason uh, to worry about, you know, pericardial disease, any reason to worry about amyloidosis or any of the secondary causes? Does this patient have significant uh, ischemic heart disease that is manifesting as uh, shortness of breath and all that kind of stuff? So one uh, is, uh, uh, are there any etiologic uh, uh, issues there other than just sort of a common cardiometabolic-related uh, HEFPEF entity? Uh, the second is comorbidity management. So we know that patients with uh, HEFPEF have a high burden of comorbidities, 
And these comorbidities tend to have bidirectional relationship with HEFPEF. So HEFPEF tends to make the comorbidities worse, and the comorbidities uh, tends to make the HEFPEF uh, worse. So whatever we can do in terms of uh, control of the comorbidities that this patient uh, has uh, needs to be taken into account. And then the third is the specific management of uh, uh, HEFPEF uh, uh, by itself. Uh, this person's BNP is 130, which obviously is uh, above normal not very high. Uh, so just uh, to our listeners, uh, you know, patients with HEFPEF uh, usually don't have the big dilated hearts. They have a smaller circumference in their cardiac chamber, so they don't have enough pressure on the walls. So they tend to have a lower natriuretic peptide level to begin with. And on top of this, this patient is also obese, and obese patients also have lower uh, natriuretic peptide levels. So uh, uh, just just keep that that, that little bit of nuance uh, in mind. Uh, so I don't know, is, is is there any other way of sort of approaching this patient that, uh, Alana, you would think differently? No, I mean, I agree with you. I think sort of addressing um, her comorbidities is very relevant. And I agree, I think, you know, particularly because she's a woman um, and she's having dyspnea, could this be, a, I hate to say, an atypical angina presentation because, you know, what is sort of true typical angina? But I think you're right that we need to make sure she doesn't have an ischemic disease that is perhaps precipitating um her new presentation of HEF-PEF, but assuming that those things are not the case, that she doesn't have, you know, new coronary disease, that she doesn't have amyloidosis, um, I guess the other question is what agents might you choose to, to treat her if the, if the sole diagnosis here is HEF-PEF? Yeah, so you know, this patient has trace fetal edema, some congestion in the lung field. So I mean, this person is clearly sort of clinically uh, congested. So we'll require some diuretic therapy uh, in order to, for symptomatic uh, improvement uh, will require some, you know, management of, uh, again, uh, blood pressure uh, and, and other comorbidities as we discussed. But now coming to specifically management of heart failure. Uh, so this patient is sort of interesting because the ejection fraction is exactly actually 50%. Uh, so, you know, based on the secondary analyses of uh, a lot of the HEF trials that showed benefit in the heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, uh, the recent European Society of Cardiology guidelines, you know, American guidelines are not out yet, but the recent European Society of Cardiology guidelines have basically recommended that all patients with mildly reduced ejection fraction should be treated the same way as we treat those patients with ejection fraction of 40% or less. But that that goes up to 49%. So now we are getting to really sort of the technicalities here that this person's ejection fraction is 50%. And we all know that, you know, 50 and 49 is really not a, not a real demarcation. But I think you can just give a consideration for aggressive heart failure uh, uh, therapy in this uh, patient. Uh, but uh, uh, if you were to be, you know, very uh, evidence-based, uh, at least two therapies uh, uh, valsartan sacubitril and uh, empagliflozin, both of those trials uh, are positive for a patient uh, like this. Uh, and I would personally certainly add uh, espernolactone in this uh, category as well. So if, if you're going to say all this, then the only thing which is kind of sort of left is the, is the issue of uh, beta blockers. Uh, so unless until there's a, another indication for a beta blocker, one can argue whether this person needs a beta blocker or not. I would say no, although there is some meta-analyses that might show some benefit, but there's really no good prospective randomized uh, uh, evidence. So I, I would say if you're managing HEF-PEF in this patient, uh, some gentle diuresis, uh, uh, SGLT2 inhibitor, the positive trial so far we have is with empagliflozin, uh, valsartan, sacubitril, and spironolactone. 
uh, we can discuss in which order we might want to go uh, uh, in terms of therapy for this patient, but uh, seems like uh, probably the best option is a combination. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's important not to forget the diuretic because oftentimes, as you mentioned, these FF patients can be congested as she is on exam. She's obese, which may make it more difficult to identify the congestion on exam, but we know that the diuretics can help relieve congestion. I wonder, you know, because she's a woman, because her ejection fraction is 50%, would you consider ARNI first line in her? Are there sort of specific benefits that you think of um, in her particular case for the ARNI versus empagliflozin, or, or is there one medication that you would choose first over the other, or does it matter? I, I really don't because, you know, if you look at the data on uh, uh, sex interaction with Valsartan and Secubitril, there was clearly a benefit seen at a higher rejection fraction uh, in women as compared to men, but at the lower end, the benefit was seen both in men and women. So at the higher end, certainly it was more with women. Uh, but, you know, if you start going into the details, the secondary endpoints, there was really not much of a sex interaction. It was only the primary endpoint, and we don't have particularly good hypotheses uh, for that. Uh, and then uh, the, the, there was really not much of a sex interaction uh, with uh, with empagliflozin. That paper came out in European Heart Journal uh, recently as well. So I would say it's a little bit of a a dealer's choice. One can make a case for either of the two. Uh, Well, Sartan Secubitril will also help control blood pressure if this person's blood pressure is uh, not under control. Uh, SGLT2 inhibitor will help, uh, you know, uh, enable uh, MRA therapy if creatinine potassium are issues and obviously have other cardiometabolic and renal benefits. So you can go either way. I mean, I think the real debate will come in if because of the availability reasons, you have to choose one or the other, which one would you choose? That's just a completely separate debate. But in terms of the sequencing, uh, I think you you cannot go wrong uh, either or first, and then the second one started uh, soon thereafter. Now, what if her ejection fraction was 60%? Would that change anything for you in terms of choice of therapy? Not really. You know, again, if uh, you, you sort of look at it, you know, the, the although there was a median ejection fraction less than 57% uh, is where most of the benefit was, but then in the women uh, uh, group, uh, the benefit extended a little bit uh, to the higher end and, and so did empagliflozin. But technically speaking, if it's 60%, then I would have a strong inclination to go with SGLT2 inhibitor first before uh, considering Valsartan Secubitril. And if cost or for other reasons, uh, you may want to just get by with ACE inhibitors as well. Uh, Again, it comes to uh, clinical response and uh, clinician's uh, preference uh, because there is this uh, label that says from the FDA that uh, Valsartan Secubitril is most beneficial when ejection fraction is less than normal. So by the time you're going into 60%, uh, then SGLT2 inhibitor becomes a little bit of a clear win. Yeah. Now, the ARNI and the SGLT2 inhibitors um, are newer agents, so they may not be familiar to clinicians, particularly in the setting of heart failure. What are the side effects that clinicians need to be worried about, need to be prepared to hear their patients describe, and how can we manage those side effects, and when should we stop medications? Yeah, so the RNA side effects are really, really easy because it's basically a replica of ACE inhibitors or ARBs that our patients have been taking, our, our clinicians have been giving to the patients for a long time. Uh, so they're very familiar with uh, ACE inhibitor and ARBs. So, you know, 
don't give it in pregnancy, lactating women. Uh, the risk of angioedema is low, but could be catastrophic. So worry about angioedema, past history of angioedema. Uh, don't uh, uh, give that. The sacubitril part uh, uh, adds a little bit to the valsartan part in terms of lowering blood pressure. Uh, so again, the blood pressure lowering effect may be a little bit more than giving ACE inhibitor or ARB uh, alone. Uh, really not not a whole lot uh, of other uh, major differences in terms of hyperkalemia or worsening renal failure and stuff like that. And if anything, the reason for which a medication needed to be stopped was actually higher with an allopril arm uh, than with valsartan sucubitril. So pretty comparable uh, 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 side effect profile, uh, just be sort of on a, on, on a watch out. And then again, if you're switching somebody rather than de novo starting RNA, if you're switching somebody from uh, an ACE inhibitor to Wellsartan sucubitril, remember a lot of those side effects the patients have already sort of adapted to as well. Now, when it comes to an SGLT2 inhibitor, that's sort of a new class for our cardiology colleagues and a, and a lot to learn. So, you know, all the things that we were worried about at one point, you know, amputations and fractures and, you know, infections and all that kind of stuff. And by infections, I mean sort of sepsis and stuff like that. None of those have really panned out and, and are really not uh, of concerns. Uh, yes, they are osmotic diuresis, uh, diuretic, so uh, volume-related issues you have to watch out for, especially in older patients, those with ortho static symptoms or low blood pressure, and you may want to cut down the dose of the regular diuretics, uh, but, but you don't need to do it protocolized or on uh, uh, every patient. Uh, the real uh, uh, higher proportion of side effects that you see is genital mycotic infection. So this is not a urinary tract infection, but genital mycotic infection, which could be treated with, uh, 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 you know, local or, or uh, systemic, either you can give a pill or, or uh, local ointment as well. Uh, but uh, yes, the risk is higher, but now that we have gotten a little bit smarter in how to use the medications and we give our patients instructions for uh, genital hygiene, uh, cleaning the area, keeping the area dry, uh, that risk has actually gone down. So if you look at the earlier trials, it was somewhere in the range of six, 7%. And now in the latest trials, uh, it's in the range of about 2%. Now, obviously in the control, it's about 0.5 to 0.7. So it's still threefold higher, but very manageable and considering the benefit, the absolute risk is uh, pretty low. Uh, but then the two things that really concern the cardiologist are the uh, diabetes-related side effects, which is hypoglycemia and uh, 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 DKA. Uh, so first, these are not issues in non-diabetic patients. Remember, in heart failure, we give these drugs irrespective whether you have diabetes or not. So in non-diabetic patients, that's not an issue. Even in patients with diabetes, uh, you don't get hypoglycemia unless and until you're on, on insulin or secretagogue. So if you are taking DPP-4 or GLP-1, uh, that's not an issue. But if you're taking insulin and your glucose is uh, you know, well-controlled or uh, you have history of hypoglycemia in the past, then you might want to cut the dose by 30% or uh, refer the patient to endocrinologist and co-manage with endocrine or primary care setting. And then the final issue is the DKA. And again, it's uh, it's an issue. I mean, the, the risk of DKA with SGLT2 inhibitors is actually lower than the risk of angioedema with ACE inhibitors, right? So it, it's rare. But again, we have to be careful because these patients, these drugs are glucosuric, uh, you don't, you, you may get a DKA, but your glucose may not be 600, it may be 200. So sometimes a diagnosis is missed. 
But again, if you're going to be NPO without food, if you're going to go through surgery, if you have significant diarrhea, you're in the hospital, you're sick, uh, you just need to stop the SGLT2 inhibitor for a few days. That really, really mitigates the risk. And the overall risk is, is, is really low. Just keep the threshold in your mind that if somebody is complaining of not feeling well and nausea and whatnot, just to check for, for ketones. But overall, really very uh, uh, easy to use drugs. Last question. Uh, you mentioned the ESC guidelines that were published this past fall in 2021, but we are expecting an updated set of U.S. clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of heart failure this spring. What do you anticipate clinicians should expect those guidelines to say as it pertains to the treatment of patients with HFPEF? Well, you know, I mean, I think that uh, even the last set of guidelines were already giving a recommendation to Candesartan and to uh, spironolactone for patients with uh, HFPEF. Uh, and then the Paragon data and the uh, indication for Valsartan Sucubitril has been out for a little while. Uh, so one can perhaps expect uh, some uh, uh, recommendation for that uh, as well. Uh, the issue of SGLD2 inhibitor is a little bit tricky because the data were presented from Emperor Preserve relatively recently, you know, just a few months ago, and the guideline process was well in advance. Uh, and there's another large trial which uh, will be coming out soon as well. So whether the guidelines uh, uh, take that one trial that came towards the tail end of the guideline development process and make a recommendation or just wait for an update when the second uh, trial comes out, uh, I don't know what, what the guidelines will, will end up doing. Uh, but the good thing is, from a regulatory perspective, uh, it already got an indication for the treatment across EF ranges. Awesome. Well, Javed, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and share your expertise on heart failure and how to manage patients with chronic HFPEF. I think you provided some great information to our colleagues today. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you have learned something new you can bring back to your practice, and we look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.